welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Takei, and this is the Interview and Insights segment. Today, within the context of gaming and technology, we're going to be discussing building and launching funds, paths to partner or venture partner, hiring dynamics at pre-existing VC funds, and common pathways into gaming VC. Building and launching a fund, although not stereotypically thought of as entrepreneurship, is one of the hardest things to do and is an ambition for many inspiring investors and ex-entrepreneurs. Also, finding a pathway to partner is a subject of common concern for professionals starting their investing career, and furthermore, it can be even harder when the market dynamics and gender norms are stacked against you. We'll also be touching upon deal flow and investor talent when it concerns female investors and female entrepreneurs. From the macro level, in 1.9% of venture funding went to female entrepreneurs in 2022, a mere $4.6 billion out of $242 billion deployed. And this is also down 2.4% from 2021. It's openly known that female founders on average rates less than their male counterparts. And on the investor side, especially in gaming, there's a paucity of female investors. I'm pretty sure I can count them all in like, two hands or something. Uh, And the games industry as a whole continues to have its fair share of gender dynamics problems, even as recently as the abuse allegations that emerged in the wake of GDC 2023. This is personally an issue the gaming industry has been struggling with. Um, Expanding the definition of what qualifies you as a gamer, as not a gamer, and as the professional industry, making sure that everybody feels that they can participate and are not ostracized based on gender, race, or sexual orientation. And so, in order to discuss... Um, what we can do in the industry to support the continued efforts of diversified funding, both on the deploy and the raise side, and to break down the differences between venture operating roles and venture partner roles. Joining me today are two extraordinary investors. The first is Holly Liu, co-founder of Kabam, which for those who don't know is a mobile games developer and publisher that was acquired by Netmarble for one point for over a billion. Holly um, was an advisor also to several games investing shops that we know, like Convoy and Animoca, as well as the managing partner and co-founder of PKO Investments. And second, we have on Felicia Co of Play Ventures, who has been recently promoted from VP to partner. Congratulations, guys, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having podcast. us. Woo. Um, and so I was super excited to have you guys on. It's cool <laughs> to have both a unicorn founder and a venture partner and an MD of a fund and a rare female partner in Games VC, all in like two people. So uh, it's just, you know, we're hitting a lot of, killing a lot of birds with one stone here. Um, And so I know I gave you guys uh, a brief introduction, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey into games. Uh, You know, Holly, I think for you, that starts with your foundation at Kabam. And so, um, you know, maybe you want to kick us off and then then Phil can go next. Sure. I'll try to do it very quickly because it was a long, windy road. We started in 2006, not as a mobile gaming company, but as a corporate social network. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm, I feel like I'm, I, I take everybody in this time machine whenever I talk about Kabam because it was 2006. It was before Facebook had launched their, um, their developer platform. And uh, we were thinking, hey, you know, a corporate social network is really something that uh, people are missing out there. Social networks are great, but Facebook is for poor people. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're like, well, maybe and now we it's for grandmas. I know, I know. So it's back to maybe people who are don't have as much capital to spend. So we're like, oh, we should go after professionals. That quickly became like an internet, a different type of business. All of us co-founders were much more B2C. Um, and right about that time, Facebook had decided to um, open up their um, their uh, platform to third-party developers. And that was our in. We started out making fan communities for TV shows and sports teams. Um, so if you remember back in that day, there was a lot of uh, vampires versus zombies. It was very, very simple games. And um the 2008 recession just took a huge hit. And so we went back to the drawing board and we're like, you know, uh, you know what's doing really well? These companies like Zynga <laughs> were doing really well there. 
Um, and we're like, wow, collectively, we have about over 100 years of Facebook building experience. We knew the platform very well. And this was a very different generation of game developers. And I'm happy to like dive in deeper on it. But you saw the rise during this time of quite honestly, none of us on the founding team came from game development backgrounds. And that actually helped us because it was a new platform. And so we were able to think a little bit much, we all had consumer web background. So this new model of free-to-play came. Um, and it was really funny because earlier, you just talked about GPC in 2023. I mean, back then, they hated us so much that they would give us like the Sunday slot at like 4.30 p.m. to speak, <laughs> you know, like the time that nobody comes. You've been right? replaced by blockchain. And- so now I, they get the 430 yes. Sunday slot. <laughs> Which we get to talk about too, right? Like, And so I know what it's like to be a little bit uh, on the outside, but uh, even that whole generation of game makers honestly didn't come in from, from game making. I mean, you have the Zynga founders, you have the League of Legends founders, they weren't game makers, right? Like, There's all these people that um, almost made it in many ways more accessible. Then you had mobile. So right around the same time we, we ended up doing uh, mobile, I was... Uh, I initially was uh, the product designer there at Kabam, and then I eventually went to head up HR. Um, but yeah, we've definitely I've definitely seen the game industry change over time. A really upfront, close up seat to the change in business model, the change in platforms. I could talk all day about that, um, and then uh, really kind of how that changed some of the gaming mechanics that you see today. Because um, now free to play is really here to stay. Like if you if you think about um, the mobile games, like when we went into mobile games, our first our first foray was we took our Kingdoms of Camelot franchise. That was the name. It was a strategy MMO or like type game that was very, very simple on Facebook because it was just so light at the time. Um, and we ended up taking it to mobile and uh, we took it in 2012. And that was the year it won like top grossing app in the Apple store. And then since then, like before then it was all, you know, premium type of business mm. modeling. And now... It's all in-app purchases, so there there really was some is something there in free-to-play games as a service that I think you all know if you're any familiar with the Eastern world, China, Japan, all of those things were just there were decades ahead of us in the West. Uh, we we were were very much closer to kind of uh, how the traditional gaming consoles were. It has taken a big full circle, and that's usually because of the maturity of platforms and. Happy to chat about that as well. That was a bit deeper. But since we sold in 2017, I ended up going to Y Combinator. Uh, they are one of the top earliest seed stage funds. They've invested in Airbnb, Twitch, Dropbox, First Check In. I was there uh, mentoring a lot of founders. And then since uh, I left YC around 2019, like right before the pandemic, uh, I've been uh, investing in teams with a female founder for the last probably. I would say six batches. The last one I didn't do. Uh, raised a small fund. Happy to talk about that. And then <laughs> finally to PKO Investments, uh, I got together with uh, some of my friends who were founders of the Rotten Tomatoes, Crunchyroll, and Twitch. And we got together and we started forming a syndicate. Um, and we invest at the intersection of entertainment and tech. Uh, 2021 was like a crazy year. <laughs> Into 2022 was also a crazy year. Uh, and we did a lot of Web3 investing because that's just the type of uh, kind of deal flow we attracted. I'm happy to chat about that um, in terms of thinking about SPVs, deal flow, what is an SPV, different ways where people can get into investing as well. Like um, partner partner is certainly one track, but there's there's definitely different ways to, to get involved. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're long. definitely gonna there we're go. totally gonna I and mean, we're definitely gonna like take you up on explore on exploring that. Um and yeah, even before Absolutely. this podcast we were chatting, we were like, how should we describe Holly, like just like know, all the things. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but you know, before we kind of shift into that topic of breaking down the VC, VC landscape, um, uh, Phil, do you want to give us a bit of background about about yourself and your journey into games? Yeah, sure. So my journey into games was uh, pretty different from Holly, but I think the commonality was probably that we we both didn't necessarily come from gaming. Um, so I I'm I I was employee number one when Play Venture started. Um, and that was back in end 2018, early 2019, when I joined Harry and Henrik, and they're the place founding partners. And the first one was like tiny, it was like 40 million, um, doing kind of super early stage pre-seed seed investments. And, and we've grown since then. Um, and today we 
you know, continue to invest into gaming companies, free to play. Of course, Web3 is similar to Holly and what she's seen as well. And also what we call gaming services, which is like just a very bad name, to be honest with you. But it's a broad bucket of tooling, <laughs> it's infrastructure, it's, it's SaaS, it's anything in and around the gaming ecosystem. So I've led a few investments there. I, I ended up starting my first my, my career first in, in growth. My first job was actually... Uh, working for my boss who was setting up her own brand of like fashion accessories, essentially. Um, and I got that. I took that job basically because I, I had an internship at in 20, 2008, which was like, I think the the subprime mortgage crisis. And I remember looking at my internship pay and it was $2 an hour. <laughs> I was just like, this is so sad. Oh, so wow. I'm gonna find something else. Um, and I and I just kind of, you know, really always enjoy working with entrepreneurs and working with startups and trying to build something. Um, but anyway, fast forward after almost you know a decade working in, in growth, I I was honestly I was just burnt out and I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna get myself right. And after that, I was thinking, well, now what? Because I don't really, I didn't really want to go back to that. Um, I also didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I decided I was going to try and expand outside of my comfort zone, try different things. I did try to meditate my way to figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, it didn't work for me. Maybe it works for other people, <laughs> but all I got was like a two, like <laughs> things I want to do, which was like, I love working with startups and we love working with founders. And then things I didn't want to do was this long, but like, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, okay, well, I, I've got nothing to do. I'm going to give myself a year. And I call it the year of yes, where I would just come, I would say yes to anything that came my way, as long as it's like stuff that I knew, you know, it wasn't something that I didn't want to do. I would learn something new about myself in terms of what I would like to do. I would just say yes to it. My parents, you know, Asian Singaporean parents thought like my daughter is insane. She's lost her mind because the conventional path here is like you get a job, you work on your career, you climb the ladder and then, you know, you get into a better position. And so it's like here I was just bumming around for one year and they thought I was insane. Uh, but it was a great experience. And as luck would have it, I started consulting with a games company um, I led product for a voice technology startup and Henrik, who was founding partner of Play Ventures and based in Singapore at that time, um, you know, we kind of kind of crossed paths and, and Henrik and Hari at that time were thinking of starting up Play. So, you know, we started talking and they asked me if I would be interested to join um, as an analyst. And again, I was like, well, you know, sure, why not? Right. I say yes to anything that comes my way. So... Um, I said yes, you know, interviewed, did a test, and and that was like four or five years ago. So it's been it's been a very wild journey, I would say. That's awesome. So basically, you guys have incredibly robust backgrounds in a variety of investing roles, um, from SPVs to venture to growth. And so one of our missions at Novic is to help our listeners master the business of gaming, which obviously comes with the requirement of understanding investing titles and mantles. Um, and I think you know, there's a lot of different jargon words thrown out there, managing director, managing partner, general partner, venture partner, partner, um, advisory. Like, and so I think what would be good is to kind of like, from your guys' perspective, and maybe uh, Phil, at least you can kick, a, kick us off and maybe to the way it is at play. Um, how do you describe the difference between all of those terms? And what does that actually <laughs> usually mean when there's a founder coming to you and they're talking to XYZ person? I think the titles are probably designed to confound everybody, <laughs> but no, okay. I, I, I would probably like, I think the way to understanding them is that I would kind of group them into buckets of like, if you think about decision-making power and, and, and I guess um, influence. Right. Um, so like, I would say at the top, typically, you know, you'd have your founding partner or your GP. Um, and then perhaps like the equivalent would be like the MD um, and these are basically the most senior people at the fund. Typically, they have a lot of the influence and the decision-making power when it comes to those decisions. So they'd be on the investment committee. They'd be voting on the investment committee. Um, they have the most skin in the game. Um, they're typically expected to also be committing capital. And they typically would be committing the lion's share of capital in the case of the venture fund. Um, and, and, you know, then it's not just investment decisions that they're involved in. You know, we talked about how venture raising a fund that is a business as well and so they're very involved in that side of the spectrum raising the funds own funds uh, building relationships with the funds own investors called lps you know so on and so forth hiring a team 
Um, so, so they're probably kind of like the most senior folks of the team. Um, and then you'd have someone like a partner. So that's basically myself as an extension of it. Um, and I think the best way to understand it is that these are like baby GPs. So we also have an influence over investment decisions. We're probably also on the investment committee. This might vary depending on the fund and how many partners they really have. Um, at least at Play Ventures, that's how it works. We are on the investment committee. Uh, we lead deals. We contribute capital. Um, we're also involved in the other aspects of uh, the fund business where it's you know fundraising, LP relations, operations. And then you have principals or VPs. These are essentially partners in training. Um, and again, they'd be some of the people leading deals. They may be involved in other aspects of the VC business, not always, kind of depends on the fund. Um, and then what I like to call baby VCs and like there's associates and analysts and in some fund associates have a little bit more experience than analysts, but essentially they're baby VCs. Um, they're at the start of their career. They'll spend a lot of their time working on deal sourcing, uh, speaking founders, supporting the deal lead, doing due diligence. Um, I think at Play Ventures, the way we work is a little bit different. Uh, we have a team of basically about eight of us covering the investments globally and then also working to support our portfolio companies and founders. So our associates and analysts are a lot more involved in the end to end of everything from sourcing the deals to closing the deals to working with the founders, sitting on boards and things like that. Um, that's a very intentional decision for us. Um, to adopt this model because we want junior members to essentially get exposure to everything and kind of be able to develop, train, mentor, promote them. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes you really have larger setups, larger teams, and maybe they decide to silo things in, 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 in different buckets. Um, so it varies, but I think every VC firm has its own model. We've intentionally kept it small, which means for us, Sometimes we have to think about really how much time, energy, resources we have um, and what we want to prioritize improving every year. Some teams are massive where they have like, you know, entire teams of people supporting the portfolio companies and growth and different things. So, um, yeah, I think I think for me, as somebody who's come up from an analyst, which is like the most, like super junior and, and growing um, through the years, um, you know, I think sometimes people think. Uh, look at junior team members and you can see when they sometimes adopt their very transactional um, approach and how they interact with them where they're like, Oh, okay. So you're an analyst. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to deprioritize talking to you right now. And I'm going to try and go around you or look for somebody else in the team that I think is more senior because I don't think you can benefit me right now. And I kind of, I understand why they would think that way, but I also just think that that's probably not the right way to think about building relationships with an investor. And the truth is today's analysts, associates, um, they could be tomorrow's partners and GPs. They're also great champions for you, these um, junior team members as well. So I think people have a long memory and they always remember how you get, you treated, treated them when they were starting out and that mm -hmm. kind of memory carries. So just, I think something to think about as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. We had a Andreessen partner come to one of my venture capital classes the other day. And he was like, if you think that by being mean or rude to my associate, this is helping you, it's not. Because guess what? Most of the time, <laughs> I'm leaning on my associate and analyst to basically convince me this is a good idea. So, because he's like, that's the first person I'm going to go to because I can't yeah. cover everything. And so I have a lot of people that are out there looking for and hunting for deals and building those relationships. And so I think it's you know, from the from the outside perspective, in it's like, yeah, they may not have the check writing ability, but they have the check strong check influencing ability. Um, they have so, a year but, of people writing the checks, right? So right, precisely, precisely. <laughs> and so, Phil, you shared a lot about yeah. like the structure of it of the investor class. Holly, I know that you spent a lot of time playing advising and operating roles. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how a VC shop surrounds themselves with roles that are like operating partner or venture partner roles? Yes, yes. Um, I will, uh, before I jump into that, I do want to double click on uh, certain things that Phil did say where um, when you do meet one, one uh, VC firm, it's, it's not the same. You just met one VC firm. That's what they say also about these entities called family offices. Uh, everybody, I, I think Phil did a really nice job of saying like, hey, everybody operates uh, just a little bit differently. And the titles are probably there to confound people. Um, 
Uh, for any gaming founder who is listening and, and trying to raise capital, I did want to just do a little plug. There's probably like three questions you can ask that can help you kind of clarify, uh, you know, a, a little bit of, um, you know, what um, kind of uh, it, it, not so much the willingness, but uh, capability to be able to write a check. Because um, all of these uh, VC funds, they, they've they already raised this capital and they need to deploy capital, right? So we're hoping as a VC fund manager to deploy it into you. So I, I would say um, you could always ask them like their typical check size, right? Um, you could ask them a little bit of about, you know, the fund, how much of it is already deployed because sometimes, you know, they may not have, maybe they only have enough to write one or two checks. And, and finally, what is the process like uh, so that you could just get a just get a sense of a little bit how they operate. So you can just kind of align your expectations because a lot of it um, weirdly is like dating. <laughs> you know. And some people have different types of expectations when they're on a date for the relationship. So, and it's a life, it, it's like literally a lifelong partnership as well. Um, and yeah, so, um, so I just wanted to double click on that really quickly for folks who are, who are thinking about uh, going to funds and each one is kind of unique. Some of those things you can, you can certainly um, ask some of those questions just to dig a little bit in the process and make sure there's alignment. But uh, there's also a lot of other, you know, as much as uh, Phil was talking about uh, analysts, uh, associates, there's a lot of other types of positions out there that also help support, which uh, we see in terms of like operating, right? So um, my background has not been in investing and, um, you know, it is very operational. And so oftentimes what will happen with uh, founders who have a lot of operational experience is they'll typically end up in a bucket called venture partner and also advisory. So venture partners tend to be ones who help uh, with deal flow. So like, I get a lot of natural deal flow. Uh, a lot of women in games, they find me because they're like, hey, not that many. Would love to chat with you, get your viewpoints on on these on these things, right? Um, it's just people's natural reputation. And so if you are a founder with, uh, you have that access to to these other founders, because if you're for all the, sh shout out to all the founders out there, it's hard and you usually find, Founders usually know other founders, um, and that's usually how it goes. So you end up helping a little bit on on almost like deal sourcing, and even on the vetting side because you are so close uh, to that business. Like uh, like earlier on, I was saying in my introduction, happy to chat more about business models and how they impacted things, or what we saw in markets as well when we were building. Uh, so that's venture partner. Uh, typically, uh, an operating role is a bit more. Our operating partner is is very. Uh, associated with the fund. So you're usually on the payroll of the fund, as well as you tend to, there's so many, it's a business, the fund, right? There's so many operational aspects, like signing the paperwork, wiring the money, making sure, you know, the cap tables all make sense. Like, you know, the partners themselves, like maybe the GPs, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, uh, they'll, they'll go, they'll be raising the capital. They'll be trying to help close the deal with, um, um, the founder itself to get the check-in. So uh, they may not have the time or the capacity. And then some places like Andreessen, um, they famously have set up a lot of operating roles internally so that they can be the recruiting arm or the people arm for their founders, right? Because uh, you want to eventually help them succeed. Like the, the whole job of, of the fund from the founder's point of view is you want, you know, to find phenomenal founders to partner with and then do whatever you can to like support them. Right. So it's usually like finding, finding the founder closing right, and then helping them build. Like it's, it's a little bit that simple, but very difficult to do. That's why it's a craft <laughs> in so many ways. Um, there's also a myriad of outside of a fund. Um, you know, how you can get started in investing. I don't know if, if you want me to talk about that a little bit, but I think I covered operating partner, usually um, what a venture partner is. And then an advisor is likely somebody um, who has some either advisory, ex either experience building the company. Oftentimes I see founders add them because uh, they have a certain set of experience that they need to build out their company and also network. Sure. Like, Sometimes it's like not as networked out. And as much as possible, I'm a little bit on the 
cheap slash resourceful side is if your your investors behave as this also extended network, extended advisor, they can absolutely tell you what's going on in the market because they've invested, they're constantly roving. So they're very good at being able to give you those kind of outside inputs and lean on them for their network, right? That's probably one of the things they sell you on. It's like, we have this great network, we can help you you know, if you need advice on UA, which is user acquisition, we have the person for you. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you need to talk to this corp dev person, um, you know, we, we have that. Yeah. And I so, think that's yeah. like the, yeah. the the idea is just to kind of share like what are the different ways to get into VC. And there's actually so many mm-hmm. more unique ways to tackle it Absolutely. that are you know, starting your own fund. You can come in from the operating side and then be in and play an advisory or an operating role. You could do what Phil did, start kind of at the at the analyst role and then kind of and rise up. And so, Phil, I'm going to kind of like toss it back to you. But mm-hmm. given that that's the mo- that's the path that you just that you just kind of have climbed, you know, what is it? What does it take, I guess, to to become a partner? I think like the internal mobility of like become being promoted from analyst to partner is like an incredible and th- within the same firm is actually like usually at least for, and correct me if I'm wrong, but rather rare because a lot of times people will laterally move out of a VC into another VC to get that kind of partner milestone. So could you share a little Mm -hmm. bit about your experience about what it's been like to become a partner at play specifically? Well, I mean, I I think you're, you're right. It, it is not always common, especially depending on the fund setup and the fund outfit, how top heavy, how many partners you already have at that fund. Um, you might not have a partner position that is available. I think, again, that's where plays a little bit different. We've always been very lean. Um, and I think, you know, just coming in, I guess, at the ground floor equivalent <laughs> of setting up a VC fund, um, you know, that that's obviously been helpful because I've grown with the team and grown with the fund and I've worked with the founders for, you know, five years, essentially. So um, I think there's a lot of trust there as well that's, that's been built. Um, I think just before maybe we dive into like what it takes to, to get into a partner position, I think, you know, just, just tapping on what Holly did, Holly's talked about with venture partners, right? Like we've had venture partners as well. I agree. Like um, we've had venture partners who are more focused on deal flow. We've had venture partners who also took on a different form where they were doing both deal flow, but then also because they had that operational experience of being a founder, um, we actually got them involved as well in like working with some of our portfolio companies and kind of being their key point of contact, that person they call when they need to talk about things or just advice about things as well. So, so those are also, I think, very meaningful roles, um, although maybe not a conventional investment role. Um, and I think culturally there's some differences as well with the landscape, like at play ventures, like none of us really came from a VC background, right? So the founding partners were entrepreneurs. They, they started their own games companies. They sold them to Disney King respectively, and then got into angel investing and then, you know, decided to do their own fund. Um, and so I think because of that, the DNA of the team, when you look at, you know, just not just myself, but almost everybody else on the team, none of us come from a VC background. We're extremely open-minded to people who come from different paths. Um, our our analyst, um, Ethan, in based in Manila, like he he was hired through Twitter. We found him, Kenrick, our GP, found him through Twitter, um, just doing Web3 things. And um, that was how he got his start, right? Because totally didn't come from a VC background. Um, we've noticed that in some geographies and markets, that's very different. Um, in, in, in the UK, for example, we've noticed that that tends to be folks who come from a financial background and banking background. So there are some cultural differences. And um, you know, so if you're if you you don't come from VC, you're looking to get into VC. Um, that's something to also be aware of um, the different geos that you're playing with and the eccentricities of those those markets as well. So basically, look yeah, for I, people I, like us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would also love to double click a little bit more on what Phil was saying, particularly on the origin story of of how play uh, started and. I, I do speak from a U.S. Uh, Silicon Valley perspective. And mm-hmm. one of the things I, I kind of glossed over is that um, for many of us um, who don't have an investing background, it actually might be difficult to, I mean, what you've done, Phil, is is amazing. And you found the right fund that loves like unconventional backgrounds. But there are folks like... Um, sometimes it's hard to break into the VC world. Um, So traditionally what's happened is gaming founders or any founders, what they'll start doing is they'll write their own check. The best way to be in it, like being an investor is very simple. You just write a check, 
right? Like there's no <laughs> qualifications. I know this is so bad. If you just want to break it down, you just write a check. That is like the bottom line. And, and that's funny enough. Uh, the biggest, to me, the biggest difference between an investing role and an operational role is that, or, or, or building a company different between founder and investor. Investor, I find myself only making one decision and that's, do I write a check or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of other decisions we make, but this is the fundamental decision that really changes things. It's like, and, and this is why it's a craft. It's like poker, easy to get in, hard to be successful. Whereas founder, oh my gosh, you are literally making thousands of decisions every day that can make or break the company as well. And they could be at the strategic level, they could be at the operational level. So um, what I recommend is if you're very interested in even charting your own path to partner, like, look at, I just gave myself a label at PKO Investments, right? I'm a partner now. <laughs> and it is, we make decisions and we make decisions kind of uniquely, but we started out writing checks. And one of the things is is uh, what you can do is, is is if you meet a phenomenal founder, write a check. Hi, there's definitely laws out there of like you need to be an accredited investor in the U.S. Um, definitely highly risky asset. So I would not like take a second mortgage on your house or anything. But if you do have a little bit um, syndicates, I do want to cover that just very briefly, if that's okay, Alex, sure, uh, yeah. because it's, Go for it's it. a great yeah. way of accessibility uh, to get in and see it. So basically what uh, syndicates are, it's basically, um, you know, there's somebody like like myself and, um, you know, some, some folks kind of leading it and they'll say, hey, we find a phenomenal founder. So say like we have great deal flow into something, but we don't have a fund. We have no money to deploy. But we got some friends and some type of network that's highly valuable that also is looking for these deals. Then what we do is we go and we send out, uh, we talk to the founder, we kind of broker it, and then we send out um, kind of a call for investment. Would you would you like to invest in this company? And so for many people, they can. It's free to join a syndicate. Uh, you could go to Angel List and you can look at all of these things. Um, and the greatest thing is you could see how what they call how deal memos are written, right? You could see and you can make your own decision of like putting capital in and you could put it in as little as $1,000. Um, and in a capital constrained environment, uh, syndicates are good and bad. Our own, what we call our own LPs has, um, you know, they've been hit by markets as well. So the deal flow is a little bit slower. But um, it's definitely a way if you're looking to get in to make an investment and to really kind of figure out your chops, because I'm pretty sure the interview will have things around like, what are things, what's your thesis on investing? Like, what do you know that other people don't know? Why do you think this will be the next big thing? Um, You know, what do you think about market size? And you have to think about, you know, because those are the things these LPs are going to ask from you. So if you, you can end up leading a syndicate, first, you can participate. And you could just look and see and learn. And I think that's great. Then you could start writing a check. That Congratulations, you're an angel investor at that point, right? And then soon what ends up happening, and this is probably what happened with Play Ventures, it, the founders, they're like, wow, we either have so much deal flow and to go out each time to ask for money because you have to ask like the founder, hey, can you reserve 300000 for me? Let me go ask my buddy, see who wants to come in, right? So you're constantly, in many ways, selling. Um, and that Sometimes that just takes time to go in and uh, you just can't act as fast as the founder. So I'm, I'm almost sure that the Play Founders uh, partners kind of came up against this in terms of like speed. And particularly uh, a couple of years ago, speed was a very important thing because there was so much capital competing for one another. So... But syndicates are alive and well still. Uh, you should go on AngelList um, and you can go and become uh, an angel investor slash and even an LP for those who might not be familiar with those terms is like an LP is a, called limited partner. Those people give money into either the fund and the fund really is a pot of money that's managed by the partners or um, it's into a particular SPV, which is a single purpose vehicle, which will be if this is money and this is an entity, I'm putting money in this entity that's created to invest in this particular company. So um, I highly recommend AngelList if you want to go kind of check out things. Uh, but there's like uh, groups of people. So so the group of people that you end up emailing all the time becomes your syndicate. So there's like Airbnb alumni, uh, the Lyft alumni, the Uber alumni. So there's actually, if you have a big company or you worked at a big company, you can get in on 
on some of the these deals uh, and, and kind of see Google has a really great program called Zooglers. So um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to also kind of show that side of, of, of different things. Uh, I apologize. It probably took a bit longer than expected, but I wanted to your folks today. No, no, that I think that was great. And I think, you know, I think part of the re- origin story of Play Ventures is also when we started the fund. I mean, obviously, uh-huh. Henry and Hari had been angel investing already as gaming angels. But also, I think that recognition that at the early stage, it was like, you had angels at that time. Uh, now it's different. Now you have a lot of oh. different early stage gaming funds. Exactly. But at that time, you didn't really have it, right? So you would have angels, like larger strategics, yes you know, growth funding, but the first you'd have to make your exactly. way there. Um, and there was exactly. this gap, this gap of people yeah. um, who would invest yeah. at that early stage. And exactly. a lot of what happens in VC is also kind of flavor of the month stuff. So gaming for a while yeah. got a lot of funding and then people got burned and people were like, oh, it's too hard. So we're not going to invest in gaming anymore. Gaming is hard. I will say that from a gaming yeah. founder perspective. It is very hard yeah. to build yeah. and then even even invest in it. I, I, I will also point out that uh, when you do for, for founders who go talk to funds, uh, mm-hmm. just know that they're managing a, a whole pot of money. So they have to think about what they call portfolio strategy, like how many checks are they going to write this year? How much are they going to save to like if the founder raises later to to keep what they call their pro rata, which is like if they bought like 5% in the beginning, they want to put in more money at the next round to keep that percentage. A lot of it is about ownership because just think about their economics of um, what they need to achieve in terms of for the fund. For a syndicate, because it's a deal by deal basis, it, you don't have to think as much about portfolio management and you make the decision as the investor uh, whether or not you want to put money into it. So it's not, it, it's a little bit different if you're going to a syndicate um, and go that route. It might take time to to fill that, to, to get the money. Usually a fund is pretty fast, but maybe takes a longer time to make a decision. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a little bit, just know when you're talking to those two as founders. Yeah. So I guess like what kind of what I'm picking up from both of you guys is that there's actually a ton of ways to get in, right? There's, you can start investing from the angel side. Again, like you said, the qualifications for being an investor is just writing a check one time. You can kind of recruit into a formalized VC firm. You can go the operating mm-hmm. route and then join as an advisor or an operating partner or a venture partner. Um, and so a lot of the reason why like I, you know, like have prompted this kind of like landscape layout is because this is like, that is the way that you get into VC. And when we think about mm-hmm. the paucity of female games investors and female gaming entrepreneurs, I wanted to do it within the backdrop of how how can you get in, right? And so I think, mm-hmm. Holly, you've had seemed to have a lot of this experience, right? Where you're saying like, I have a network of other female entrepreneurs and this is how I funnel them into deal flow, right? And so I've actually thought a lot about this in my life. You know, is it better to be a female in an industry operator or hold purse strings and control capital flow as a female venture capitalist, like what's more important for our ecosystem. And so there's a number of women founded and led VCs that have been increasing since 2010. You know, Kristen Green founded Forerunner, retail and brand focused um, fund that did like Warby Parker and Dollar Shave Club, Alien Lee, a vet of Kleiner Perkins, started Cowboy, Cindy Padnos founded micro VC firms, Illuminate. Um, and beyond that, there's even been female funds that have been building like specific like scouting programs. And so I guess maybe to, to Holly and to Phil, what I would ask is sort of like on the investor side, how do you think about increasing female investor talent in, in the pool? Um, and how so, Holly, for you, how do you balance taking a first-time founder risk? You just said that many of you have a lot of female founders that come to you. Um, the conundrum, obviously, being that the greatest predictor of founder success is having prior founder success. And a lot of females are their first-time founders. And so maybe, uh, we'll, Phil, we'll start with you and talk about the investing side. And then Holly will pivot to you to talk about like the entrepreneurs. Sure. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. Um, when I started at Play Ventures, I didn't really know any other female investors that were, were doing gaming VC. And it's a very, it's a very specific niche, right? Because we know that female investors in VC in general is like tiny and people in gaming are tiny. And then you're like at this tiny little intersection. Um, and it was very, very lonely. Um, I remember kind of like there was one period of time where I, you know, had done a good week at work and just 
came home feeling super weird. Um, and I, I just didn't really understand why I felt weird. And, and again, coming from the context of working in product and working in growth, you know, you do see a bigger gender balance there. And I looked at my calendar and I was like, I've talked to so many people this week. I've not talked to a single woman the entire week. And that's insane. Right. And that's like, oh, that that was when it kind of hit me where it's like, yeah, I am really in a minority here. And there's a particular kind of loneliness with that as well. Uh, when you when you start as a female VC in gaming, um, you don't see a lot of people that look like you. Um, so that was then. I think recently we've uh, Kelly from One Up and myself and Shan Shan from Lightspeed. We decided to start a Telegram group uh, for for women in in gaming investments. And and Kelly was like, I don't know. I think I think it might just be three of us. <laughs> And I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I'll join. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. I've over the years, I've met more and more women and I, I for sure it's, I don't know how big it'll be, but it's not three. It's not going to be three. Um, and we have about like, I think 25 people now in the group. And, and, and so like, for me, that was like, if you tell me four or five years ago, like there'd be 20 something women in gaming investments in a Telegram group, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, get out of here. <laughs> but you know, I think small baby steps, but those, those are, those are improving. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, to, an- to answer your question about like, which is which is more important? Is it female founder representation? Is it female investor representation? I think it needs really to be both. It's such a complex issue um, that I don't think it's like, there's no, you know, like one simple fix. Un- unfortunately, I've thought about this question a lot. <laughs> um, and I see it kind of having that, that representation of investors as kind of a leading proxy, hopefully, for how we can expect diversity of founders to go in the long run. Um, and then ideally, not just founders, but like the CEO role, we would see more diverse founders, right? Um, you know, and I, I think that's important just because everybody on the t- in our, in our team has like different interests, right? We have different games we like to play. We have different interests outside of gaming. Um, and that just makes us, I think, more in tuned to where there might be opportunities that other people are not looking at and kind of different assumptions that we can challenge. Um, and I, so I think when you have female founders and female investors as well, that, that, that helps each other kind of like not only our female founders, for example, finding opportunities that perhaps um, their male founders wouldn't be looking at, but then you have somebody on the investment team who's like, I get it, you know, I, I can see where this is going. Um, and, and, and so there needs to be a good fit there. And I think also, you know, like we talked about a little bit at the start about GDC and what happened, right? Um, I think it's so important to have safe spaces as well. And, you know, this, this GDC, I think there were a couple of events that were specifically organized for female founders. And that, again, I think was something new, right? And it's so refreshing because you walk into the room and you see all these female founders. And honestly, it is it is a different vibe. It is a different atmosphere. It is a different, um, I think, just level of comfort and openness and sharing and talking to one another. And I think it's important to have those things. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, going back to why both sides of the equations are important, when we think about opportunities, that's one thing. But then I think it's also about the challenges that female founders face. So I think somebody was, a friend of mine was telling me about how she had female founders in her portfolio saying that uh, they weren't going to come to GDC. And it's like, oh, why? Because they were planning to. And it's like, oh, because they didn't have um, childcare support sorted. And we were just like flabbergasted because we were honestly, I've never heard, I'm not hating on male founders, but I've never heard a male founder say that. And to think that somebody is missing out on uh, an opportunity at GDC to network, to meet other people, to meet other investors, meet other founders, because they don't have childcare. Like that's something clearly problematic, like the support network for founders, for partners, you know, I don't know what those, their specific situations were at home, but obviously that, that's some issue that needs to be addressed, right? So yeah, sure, I mean, sure. TLDR. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because it's like a societal issue. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. It's, it's everywhere. It's a huge um, issue. Yeah. But I mean, actually, I remember I remember that conversation with Andrea and talking about that. And I think actually just to before we switch over to Holly to the to the to the entrepreneur side, um, you know, I, you know, when you were talking about, oh, when you have a female investor, they might understand these things that you struggle with. That could be something like childcare. That could be something like it could be anything else. And you know, there's actually like this study that was done in like 2014 by like HBS and Wharton, and they found that like when men and women presented identical pitches, 68% of the participants chose the ventures that were pitched by the male voice and not the female voice. 
um, because they found it to be more convincing, persuasive, fact-based, and logical. And so at play, specifically, when you're the female, you're the female investor that's supposed to be looking out for those biases, have you guys actually installed any kind of training processes to help maybe uh, mitigate some of maybe the internal biases that the partners or even yourself like might have. At least this is like my experience yeah. too. I think biases at, on from the investor level are everywhere, and that's for like what kind of, of investments like you like, what kind of market you like, what kind of founders yeah. you like. So yeah, yeah, for can sure. You just share a bit sure. about that as well. Yeah, I mean, for for me, like when I think about bias training, um, I think that's one part of the puzzle, and I think about it from like several angles. There's obviously awareness of what individual biases we might have. Um, and then there's also creating the framework. Okay, so we're all aware and that's great. And then now what, right? Um, and so, you know, thinking about kind of the framework for how do you call out that bias and how do you actually make sustainable change for it? And how do you give um, everybody on the team basically the toolkit to kind of reduce it as much as possible? And so everything right now that we're, I mean, it's, it's all iterative. We don't see it as like, a, okay, we've got the process now and everyone's doing bias training and therefore check the box and obviously you're fixed now forever. Um, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> um, and I think bias training, honestly, is not something that we've really done enough work into. I would love if other people have like other solutions that they thought were amazing. I would love to know that because I think that's something that we want to do and we want to do it more than just classroom training. Um, that, that ends with like really obvious, like here, you know, here's the MCQ, the multiple choice question, <laughs> the really obviously wrong answers. <laughs> and then, you know, we're going to call it a day. So we've, we focus a lot on kind of culture. And when you talk about culture, we're talking about that framework within the team where people are holding each other to account, whether it's stereotypes, whether it's assumptions, whether it's problematic behavior, um, and, and kind of pushing people to, to explore their bias tendencies, um, so what we've done is is basically just kind of actually at the senior leadership level also calling people out on their BS basically or their toxic <laughs> bro kind of stuff. And and I mean, it's not just me calling people out. I think it's other people calling each other out as well. And I think that sets a standard of like, you know, that's not acceptable. And if that's what you choose, you know, if that's how you choose to conduct yourself, this is not the place for you. And that's not something we accept. Um, and I think just even getting our own house in order. So we had an offsite last year where one of the things that was brought up um, by several members of the team, actually, anonymously, everybody was writing their own little feedback, was diversity and diversity of our own team and our diversity of our investments. And, you know, we're not there yet in terms of where we want to be. But I think for me, that was a really positive signal because it wasn't just me like saying, you know, hey, we need more female founders. This was coming out from, you know, Every, almost every member of the team. And so I think that's a really positive signal that that's top of mind for people. Um, and, you know, then we need to have follow-up conversations on what we're going to do about that exactly. Uh, but some of the things that we've, have, we've done is kind of looking at hiring, for example, when we look at candidates for roles. Um, we don't have any open now, but if you are a female looking to get into gaming VC, I always look to add to that to, that, to the team. Um, but in hiring, you know, we have team members ask the hiring manager basically, like, how many female applicants do we speak to? There's speak for for this role, right? Um, do we speak to all of them? Like, why why was this person um, not considered? You know, do we at least do an interview? How many people spoke to them? Is it just a bias kind of situation going on? Um, and in one case, I think we actually pushed back on the hiring manager and told them to go back to square one, try again. <laughs> so, like, you know, I think just kind of. Being really um, intentional when you hire and you build mm. a team, you know, or even down to like our own performance reviews, we've rehauled our performance review process this year so that it's less subjective. It's more um, explicit in how, you know, what specific skill sets need to be looked at. Um, and we'll probably revise it again this year because we've already done it and like, okay, this needs to be improved. And, and so I think that's important. And I think also just like having counter stereotypes, positive counter stereotypes that people get exposed to every day. So whether that's through our own female founders or whether through it's, sure. you know, myself being in a leadership position, um, that's really important. Um, and yeah, we, we also, I think, try to build a culture of challenging assumptions or questioning long held assumptions and principles. So we do these mm -hmm. fortnightly sessions where we examine topics that we think they're interesting. They could be investment areas. They could also be investment principles. Like what does an ideal founder look like? in this space. If we think this space is interesting, what does that look like? 
um, mm. or, or, you know, I think that culture of questioning is important. And I think to your point, like, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of writing things out. Um, so, you know, again, I know the investment get memo gets a bad rep. Um, and I, I don't mean writing investment memos for the sake of writing investment memos to show that, Hey, I've done all this work, but I think it's helpful when we examine deals. Sometimes we, 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 you know, we have team members who basically who are championing the deal. So we write out the memos, right. And that's where we write out, like, here are the pros or the cons, here's the pitch. And I think when other people on the team are looking at that as well, it's like, you're not listening to a male or female voice. You're looking at words or, or diagrams or whatever it is. And I think that helps to make it a little bit more objective in a way. Um, mm. Not, I, I don't think it's going to be hundred percent foolproof, obviously, but I think we look for things that we can just remove bias. And it's something even as simple as like on our own calls, the team is remote. So, I mean, the team is distributed. So I'm in Singapore, part of teams in Singapore. We have part of team in Helsinki. We have somebody in Paris. Um, so a lot of meetings get done virtually. And when we were small, like it was fine. It was kind of like a bit of a free for all where, you know, we would just talk and like, or, you know, talk over each other or whatever. But then as the team expands and you realize like some people get more airtime because they're just louder, more aggressive. Um, and talked sure. over. So we just implement like really something simple and it, like almost every video call has it, right? Like raise your hand. But things like you got to honor the raising hands. Uh, but I right. think that actually helps to make sure that the discussions and the arguments don't just get skewed by somebody um, because <laughs> it, it's just like, right. you know, you, you've got your time. We'll take your cue number and yeah, wait yeah, yeah, yeah. for your time. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think I think there there are different things that we try to do. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, if you know another data point, like another 2018 Harvard study said that for VC firms that in, increased their proportion of female um, partner hires by 10%, saw an average of 1.5 spike in fund returns and 9.7% more profitable exits. So returns don't lie. Um, <laughs> and so with that, and with that, and the, and, the, and the last like, you know, like five, five minutes or so, five to 10 minutes, I, you know, I want to pass it off to Holly to talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the supply side, right? We talked a lot about like, okay, like who are the people doing the funding, but there's also the who is yeah. available to be funded. And so Holly, could you share a little bit about like your experience of helping other female entrepreneurs get funded and as yourself mm -hmm. being a female founder? Yeah. So, uh, there's so many things, Phil, that I wanted to interject when you were talking so many great things. Uh, I, I first also spent a lot of time thinking about the original question you were asking Alex of, is it better to be a founder or a funder? Sadly, I think the problem is so bleak that I don't really care. Founder, <laughs> funder. I'm always like, I'm going to support you either way. All sides. Let me figure that out. Yeah. All sides. Cause I need as much help as possible. Um, and in some ways, it's a very, very selfish uh, reason in terms of, of um, you know, why I think there need to be more female founders and female investors. It's so myself doesn't feel like such a freak and so lonely because it has been a very lonely road. There's not that many out there. And then if you just rewind 10 years back to when we were starting, it was it was even worse in so many ways. Um, I also, it, this also led me to uh, when I left YC, uh, speaking about the study that you quoted, um, I did my own digging. And this is all like basically public information. I compared teams with a female founder, YC teams with a female founder and YC teams with like all male founders and found that the YC teams of female founder performed better. And these are like a ton of studies out there, right? Um, that that do this. So there's a ton of studies. And so um, the I, I did a fund um, after I left YC that really kind of uh, just focused on um, teams with a female founder that came out of YC. Um, and so that one's been running, I, I think I did my first investments in 2020 from like a fund. So I'd, I'd raised some capital. It was, it was pretty small, but like about a million, sometimes to 2 million. Um, and I would invest. So uh, that's been very kind of helpful. Being a female founder has definitely been helpful on uh getting the deal flow as well. So like I said, there are some some natural um, kind of folks that come out of the woodwork. Uh, one of them, I have this really great story. It was really interesting. I ended up investing in her, but it was really funny when you're talking about biases. Um, you know, we had one or two meetings and I think by the third meeting, she was like, Holly, why don't you believe me? And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, am I harder? She was a female gaming. She was doing like a new game thing. And some of it is, absolutely i'm harshest on 
the, the industry that you come out of. That is one thing you find as a founder. You're like, no, I'm not investing in it because it's so hard. Or you kind of feel like you spend 120% of your time over a decade thinking about this problem. If you haven't figured it out, like, will other people figure it out? Don't know. Maybe. All right. So you do have to get a little bit out of that poo-poo mindset. Uh, but one of the things I realized, I was just like, look, you have to be really great at metrics. When uh, we had this position at Kabam, these people didn't really look at metrics. And she goes, oh, it was actually opposite for me. And I ended up putting a, a check in because I was like, oh, okay. So it was a different position that you got your chops um, on. And yes, that kind of like eased my uh, worry about like, you just need to be like a huge analytics head on uh, launching this type of game. Um, and absolutely, I, I wonder in the back of my mind sometimes of like, wow, I was, I was, I was confronted with my own bias. Uh, but I also have bias. Like it's hard. Like even though I do gaming deals, it's just it's really difficult. <laughs> like at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, it's really hard. Um, I will say my personal investing has been about 50% female. I do think there's something about just being more comfortable um, as a founder going to a female investor. Um, so that's where, and then weirdly, and I know you probably get all this bill is all the, the females get referred to me, uh, particularly for Asian female. They're like, Oh, here you go. <laughs> but, um, I, I like, I do absolutely think that, um, on, on the other side, I, I don't think it's a bad thing either. Uh, cause as we learned from sociology is like, likes, like, so I love having more female investors mm. on the other side of the table. I love having more female founders. I just don't care. It's just so bleak. Um, I also, it's very interesting as well, since this is a gaming podcast and uh, there were a ton of biases, uh, even like operationally. Um, and some of the things that that we kind of did uh, in terms of trying to, to help us like not fix the problem, but yeah, in some ways address this is, I remember it's, it's like a quick story, which is kind of funny, um, is we had an intern program and... Um, the biggest question, the, the question that I went to my recruiter, I said, we have got to get rid of this question. And the question was, are you a gamer? And this is back in, I would say, esports hadn't quite taken off yet. So I think the term gamer uh, before, it, it's, it's a little bit less loaded now, given the popularity of esports and you can become a professional gamer. Um, and therefore, you like that, that's closer to athletics. Whereas before, I'm like, man, it really felt like it was such a sexist term, like for an intern. And most women would respond with, I don't, I'm not a gamer, but I love playing games. And they would talk about, and, and if you think about it during the mobile time, there was, uh, there was just this influx onboarding new gamers, right? Because we're no longer World of Warcraft, no longer doing raids with your guild, um, no longer StarCraft, any of these things, there were these moms that were playing and we couldn't be called gamers. Like, and in my mind, I felt like that was a very sexist term and it was turning away women that were like, they're like, I love playing games and you dig a little bit deeper and they'll be like, oh, I'm level 900 on Candy Crush and I haven't spent a single dollar. So I knew that they were gamers. They just wouldn't be validated as gamers from the gaming industry because mm. At that time, it really felt like if you didn't love World of Warcraft or you weren't at a certain level here, you're just not legit. You can't even call yourself a gamer. And that's like saying to like a music fan, like if you don't like country music, then you're not a true fan of music. Like it's just ridiculous, right? And and part of it, I have to blame on, you know, whenever it's mostly women that will sometimes tell me like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't like the video game industry or I don't like video games is really what, and I'm always telling them, I'm like, dude, there has not been a video game made for you yet. Um, and that's because like, to me, I just feel like gaming is, is a very human thing. Playing is a, it's great. You're called play ventures. It's very human. Um, this is how we learn. This is how we interact. It's it's usually through games. I mean, I'm I'm like the first game that uh, you play is when you're six months old, called Peekaboo, and you're actually learning about object permanence, right? So, it just became like this overloaded sexist term in my mind. I like I said, I think it's changing a bit, given now. I think some people will call themselves professional gamers versus just a gamer. There's more people playing Roblox, Fortnite, uh, that are women and men. Like this next generation, it's like 
watching TV is gaming is is very similar. Yeah, that, that's a perfect example <laughs> of how, you know, like you guys are um, changing the process to make it a little bit more better and, and, and more um, amenable for females to apply and to be at least if even participate on the industry on the operating side or from the investing side. And actually, that's a it's a it's a very like inspirational note, sort of to also to end on because you know you just talked about how play is for everybody, and that's also something that I've said to a lot of people is like I can find I promise you like I can find a video game that you're going to like, right? And it's just like you haven't thought of that experience as being like a video game, right? Because yeah, you know, my, all my friends when they were kids used to play Roller Coaster Tycoon, and then something happened only. You know, I kept playing, but they stopped, right? And so I think, yeah. um, you know, there's there was so much to unpack in this episode, um, but unfortunately, we have to we have to wrap. And I'm so utterly starstruck by starstruck by your contributions to the industry of games and investing. Um, you guys have certainly paved the road for other women to to follow. Um, and I, you know, I've definitely found two other women to to look up to and idolize as north stars and um, in the gaming industry through the through this podcast. And so, just as a final as a final note, um, if there's anyone in the audience, I know Phil, you mentioned this earlier, that's interested in play ventures um you know how can they get in touch with you um they can drop me an email i'm at felicia at playventures.vc or i'm also at, on twitter with the very unimaginative handle of pphyl because phyl was taken <laughs> so <laughs> perfect um, and then uh holly for you if there's any other female founders on here or yeah. there's those that are interested in pko how can they get in touch with you uh feel free to send me a note on linkedin and I'll definitely try to get back to you. Just awesome. mention that you heard me on Navic. Oh, awesome. Um, and so on that note, uh, we'll be we'll be concluding. So big thank you to Holly and Phil for coming. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Um, I'll be back in two weeks. And until next time, friends, feel free to hit me up at alexandra at novic.co. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, um, we'd love to hear your feedback. And with that, au revoir. See you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.